Test. One, two. All right. Welcome to Theology on Tap. We're going to get started. Grab a drink and uh, grab a seat when you can. Man, this is, it's been about, what, five weeks or so, I think, since our last one. So it's been very long. We've been having withdrawals, I think. Yeah. Uh, we've really missed seeing everybody. And we're so delighted that you came out tonight. And this place looks beautiful. I've got a huge shout out to Henry's, as always. They're fantastic. Was that, what's that? Um, where? Where? No. No. No, where? I swear, I can't do it. Where is it? It went that way. It went in the wall. No, it did. It's over there. Y'all, I can't do this. That's why it's so great. Is it? Did you bring that rat yes. just on purpose? Yes. Oh, mercy. All right. Well, I'm going to pray again. Um, <laughs> where did that sucker come from? Okay, he was magically here. All right. Well, if I pass out, you'll know why. Um, anyways, we're so glad that you're here. And a uh, couple things. If this is your first time, we're thrilled. You'll see these kind of throughout the room. And uh, it's really important. So kind of the way we do things, Brian and I talk about a given topic. Tonight we're going to be talking about Christmas, which is why we're dressed up like this. But um, You can submit a question by scanning this QR code at the top, and you can ask any question whatsoever. There's nothing off limits, um, and you can do that now or throughout the talk or while we're doing it later. And then Cole is going to be our moderator. Where is he at? There he is. And so... Um, yeah, in about 20 minutes or so, he'll start fielding some of those questions, and we'll, we'll ask him, so that's great. Uh, there's a few. If you're not on our email list and you'd like to join, you can do that here as well. A few things coming up. We're going to start back up again in January with our next Theology on Tap, January 4th, we're excited about. Um, if you don't have Christmas Eve plans, you'd like to join us, we're at St. Philip's Church, right down the street, right over here. We'd love to have you join us for Christmas Eve. Times are on there. And then also we have an oyster roast that's coming up that we would love for you to join us for as well. Um, with that, I think we'll go ahead and get started. We're really excited tonight to talk about Christmas and yes. the message of Christmas, the heart of Christmas, which is really all about this theological term called the incarnation, which is a fancy word for taking on flesh, God becoming a man in Jesus Christ, which is the one of the central parts of Christianity. And so what we thought we would do tonight is talk about some practical implications or habits or uh, practices that you could take up in this season that would hopefully cultivate more joy, uh, more peace in your life in light of the message of Christmas. So that's going to be what we're talking about for a little bit there. So each of us, we've kind of got a few different practices that we'd like to talk with you about. Uh, Brian, do you want to kick us off? What, what's uh, on your list of something that you might offer for us? Well, I think a couple of things. One is that I think walking through Christmas season is something that is important, especially if you are a Christian or interested in Christianity. It's really important to be intentional in thinking about how you're going to walk through the Christmas season uh, because it tends to be a season that gets busy. There's a lot of different stuff going on. And it's easy if you are not intentional to feel like you sort of miss everything that you know, there's sometimes can be an emptiness or 
hollowness with Christmas. And what we're hoping tonight by focusing on the incarnation and talking about the, the wonder, really, of what God did in sending Jesus, this whole idea that God became man and he was fully God and fully man, if you just spend some time reflecting about that, it can begin to change your whole take on what's going on at Christmas. Yeah. Um, so a couple of the things that I wanted to think about, uh, you know, what typically goes bad is when, if you've got, the, I mean, the, what Christians believe is that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, as you said. And where things can kind of go off the rails is when you deny one of those. One of the most famous denials um, or heresies uh, is called docetism, which believe that, yes, Jesus was God, but uh, in ancient times they didn't believe that God could actually take, uh, you know, infinite becoming finite, that God would care about the physical world and physical matter. And so it was kind of ludicrous to some folks, and the whole docetist heresy was that Jesus was kind of like Casper the Friendly Ghost. Yeah. He, he basically, he was God, but he wasn't really a person. He just was kind of like a phantom. And the reality is Christians believe that, no, he was actually fully God and fully human. And so what's so significant, I think, about that is if we sit with and we think about the idea that God actually cares deeply about, about the physical world, about our bodies, about, um, about nature, and the implications that that brings, that, that God entered into his creation, that God became a man. I think uh, you start thinking about things that are happening right now, like, um, is, is it, it's, still called, it's not called Facebook anymore, it's meta, right? So the whole idea that, like, I mean, this is kind of symptomatic of all, yeah, it's not, it's not Facebook anymore? I can't know. Anyways, but like the idea of technology being uh, a tool, which is really good, but one of the things that we're seeing over and over again is that it feeds us this illusion that we can go beyond our limits. And yet God took on his, he took on limitations himself by coming a man, by taking on humanity. And I think one of the practices that I would offer is lean into your own limitations in this season. Uh, what might that look like? Well, I think it might look like actually working really hard and then taking days off, like God commands us to. Recognizing that you can't do everything, nor should you be expected to do everything. And so turning off your phone for, say, an hour a day, just setting aside technology to embrace the limitations that you have should bring uh, more fullness and joy, I think, into your life. So that's one of the things that I've got. Yeah. No, I think that's great, and I think the, the whole idea of embracing our humanity and thinking about what that means for us, how hard it is for us to acknowledge our limits, and then consider what it must have been like for God to even envision the incarnation of taking on human form. And so one of the practices that, this is a little out there, but I would encourage you to consider it. Uh, one of the pieces of music that was playing a little while ago is this really ancient hymn that the title in Latin is Conditor Alme Cedarum. And it is a beautiful ancient plain song chant. And it is about, um, the title translates to creator of the stars at night. And one of the things I would encourage you to do, we have lost the idea of living under the vault of heaven. We've lost the idea that we've been placed in this beautiful world 
that is under a beautiful sky that is full of points of light, stars, planets, that God made and ordered all of that. And we've replaced what people for generations saw every night with skylines of cities and artificial light. But if you go out somewhere, and Charleston's actually a good place for this because with the water, you can get places where you can actually see stars. So I would encourage you sometime to just go out at night with the sole purpose of just gazing up at the stars. And if you have the time beforehand, use harness your technology um, to print out the words of that hymn, Creator of the Stars at Night, and just think about the fact that the creator of all of that, all of that beauty, all of that order, all of that light that you see, that that creator chose to enter into his own creation, to enter into our world. It's just like if you were, people probably don't do this anymore, but when I was in elementary school years ago, uh, one of the things you always did in science class was to make a terrarium. Did anybody ever make a terrarium? And so you like make the little world, essentially, that's in there. And depending on your teacher, you may be able to put like some insects in there with the plants and other stuff. Well, imagine, I mean, that's sort of like what it is. God entering our world would be like us entering into that terrarium that we made in elementary school. It just is mind-boggling. And to really to try to fire up your sense of wonder about that is um, something that is very much worth doing. And listening to the hymn is worth doing because it is absolutely beautiful. If you come to St. Philip's on Sunday after the river, we might be singing it. That's true. Yes, that is in, in the background. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some great hymns, uh, especially this time of year. Some of the, the treasures of the Christian church, uh, the hymns during Advent and Christmas, Take your favorite Christmas carol. I mean, one of my favorite things is uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's not quite as good as uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which is definitely the best that there is. I'll just go ahead and say that. Um, but, no, it's, uh, I think it's built, you would know this because you're the expert on music, but the uh, last, was it seven or nine days right. leading up to Christmas? It's, Don't tell them the O antiphons. That's right. Yep. It leads up to... So I think it's a perfect time. We're kind of right now, mm -hmm. like taking "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel," for instance, and and these things that we sing so often, but rarely actually have it connect with our hearts. I think that'll be something that really will um, nourish. I think your heart in this particular season is taking those things that are so familiar, perhaps, and really re meditating and reflecting on what remarkable things are being said yeah. in those hymns. And the other thing to think about is that. Many of these hymns that we sing in Advent and at Christmas are hymns that have been sung by Christians for a thousand, fifteen hundred years. Old, yeah. you know, and getting your head around the fact that generation after generation after generation of believers in Christ have been singing these hymns to welcome Christmas each year is just to enter into that stream is a powerful experience. Yeah. Well, building off the idea of um, you know these ancient things that that people have been doing for a very long time that have stirred up beauty and and wonder and awe in their hearts, um, one of the things I, I think another practice that I would encourage folks to do, um, depending on how ambitious you are, I think you know, uh, is to look at the other error I think to avoid in, in Christmas. So if we 
worry about, you know, if, if Jesus was really God but not really a human, uh, like kind of like Casper, then, you know, that's, that has its own implications that are dangerous. But another danger is to say, well, he was just a man. I remember caddying at a golf course in Philadelphia uh, when I was in seminary, and all the caddies were actually like, no, Jesus didn't actually claim to be God <laughs> at all. And I was like, well, uh, have you ever, have you ever <laughs> go, read read, go read yeah. the Gospel of John, for instance. And so that would be a place, I think, um, is just go through, particularly this time of year, the whole lightness and dark yeah. theme of, of winter, but especially John picks that up. But it is unmistakably clear in the Gospel of John uh, just who Jesus is, that he is the God-man, and, he, and he's killed for that very reason. But uh, as a devotional thing, I would encourage you to, to read through that, or if uh, you're a little bit more ambitious, there's a book that's on that little uh, stool right there between the couches called On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius, which was in the, I think, 5th century. I think it was yeah, 400s, right. I believe. That's right. Um, in Alexandria. That's right. Yes. And there is a great little uh, introduction written yes, by somebody. Literary. It's C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Wrote it. Um, yeah. Ryan loves C.S. Lewis. Um, but one of the things I love that he says in there is that people are often afraid to read these, like, you know, Plato, Aristotle, people firsthand because they're worried, you know, this is such an intellectual giant. But yeah, what he says is, like, what part of their genius is that they're so e- relatively easy to understand. Mm-hmm. You might be surprised, and that listening to people talk about them is often more complicated than reading them themselves. And so that's a great, I mean, you can see it right there. I encourage you to go check it out after we're finished. And it's like, it's pretty tiny, but um, that might be a step up from the Gospel of John. So mm-hmm. those who are curious. Um, and it's so rich, good. even if you don't read the whole thing, if you just read randomly, like, paragraphs out of it, it's, it's just an amazing work that will uh, stoke up your uh, excitement about not only who Jesus is, but about Christmas and the, just the miracle of it. How about, you got anything else for us? Yeah, so this, you, this is a little out there, okay? The first one was a little out there, but I think being out there is a, a great thing because you don't want to be conformed to the way our culture does Christmas. And so something else that I would encourage you to do uh, during Christmas is often a really good time to reconnect with old friends, and particularly as a Christian, to reconnect with friends that you've been in fellowship with before. And I would encourage you not to just go to a bar or to go um, shopping with a friend, but to set a time maybe to get together in the evening um, at their house or at your house and to light a candle in a dark room and to sit across from each other and then ask some questions where you share with each other things like, tell me about what was the Christmas where you felt closest to God and what was it that caused you to have that experience? Or what is your favorite family memory from Christmas and why was it a blessing to you? Or what is the greatest gift that you have received that really brought you joy at Christmas? Or what gift was something that you gave to someone else that really brought you joy to give them? What is your favorite um, Christmas practice and why is it significant to you? But having that conversation where you're each answering questions like that, where you're intentional sitting in the darkness with a candle that is a symbol you know, the Gospel of John talks about the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. That's a, it's a beautiful symbol of Christmas. So I think doing that sort of very intentional kind of conversation 
is a really good way to go deeper. And if you really want to follow through with that, you could then sing something together and then pray together at the end of that. And that would be a really good way to have a meaningful time with a Christian friend. Yeah, I'm glad you, I mean, obviously, that, that is sort of, there's several of these things you might feel like they're out there, but I, I have no shame whatsoever in recommending things that are out there because yes, oftentimes like our people, hats. Like our hats. <laughs> well, you know, these may or may not increase your joy, but the things that we've talked about. We have increased your joy because we thought about wearing Christmas onesies, so you can just be grateful we no, didn't do that. I, I think they're all disappointed that we didn't wear the Christmas onesies, but yep. there's always next year to give you nightmares. So, um no, but I think the thing is, like, for folks who are discontented at all in their life, the status quo is what got you there. And so um, if you really are hungering for something more, if you're hungering for more joy and peace, then it should make sense that trying something that might be right. uncomfortable. Do something edgy. Yeah, yeah, do something a little different that might just be, um, that, that has a lot of history to it, uh, might just be that thing that you're looking for. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Anything else that you would uh, bring up, or I know there's a story that there's you a story, to yes. And he said it was he said it was a little corny, but I think it's great. Do you want to read it? Sure, I will read it. Um, this is a little story that is a modern day parable that is designed to help you kind of get your head around the idea of the incarnation, because incarnation sounds like a big theological word, uh, but this puts it in very meaningful terms. So here we go. The man I'm going to introduce you to was not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealings with other men. But he just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff which churches proclaim at Christmas. It just didn't make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about coming to earth as a man. I'm really sorry to distress you, he said to his wife, but I'm just not going to go with you to church on Christmas Eve. I would feel like a hypocrite. I'd much rather just stay home, but I'll wait up for you. So he stayed, and the rest of the family went to the midnight service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier, and then went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound then another, and then another, sort of a thump or a thud, one after another. At first he thought someone was throwing snowballs against his living room window, but when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in the storm, and a desperate search for shelter had tried to fly through his large landscape window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures lie there and freeze, So he remembered his barn out of the yard where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter if he could direct the birds to it. Quickly, he put on his coat, boots, and tramped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide and turned on the light, but the birds did not come in. He figured food might entice them. So he hurried back to the house, got breadcrumbs, sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail to the brightly lit, wide-open doorway of the stable. But to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around waving his arms. Instead, they scattered in every direction except into the warmth of the well-lit barn. And then he realized, they are afraid of me. 
To them, he reasoned, I'm a strange and terrifying creature. If only I can think of some way to let them know they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? Any, any move he made tended to frighten them and confuse them. They just would not follow him. They would not be led or shooed because they were afraid. If only I could be a bird, he thought, and mingle with them and speak their language. Then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to safety, to warmth, to the warmth of the barn. But I'd have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind. He stood there listening to the bells play O Come, All Ye Faithful, pealing the glad tidings of Christmas. And at that moment, he knelt in the snow and prayed. So it's just a little story, but you know, it reminds you a little bit about God's motivation for the incarnation, that we were, uh, as Jesus said, helpless and lost and confused like sheep without a shepherd, and that Jesus came into the world to be able to bring us into the warmth and joy of his kingdom. Yeah. I love that. I think that I relate to the stubbornness of the, the birds, mm -hmm. you know, that keep running in and are refuse to trust God, to refuse to trust the person who's trying to bring them to the warmth. And um, the book of Hebrews is all about, in, in many ways, the idea of God becoming like one of us so that he could reconcile us to himself, who is right. the author of life and joy and peace and that's ultimately the meaning of Christmas is that God loves us enough to become like us and expose himself to, to hardship and to temptation to experience what it's like to be one of us and to ultimately give himself up at the cross um, to, to redeem us to bring us back to himself and so uh, yeah it's a I'm glad you shared that story I've never heard that so um, I hope it blessed you uh, on that note, I think we might see maybe if you have. How are we doing on questions? Do we want to? We have a pretty good amount. Oh, fantastic! Well, guys, real quick, if you uh, if you don't mind, can you go in and uh, upvote some of the questions you'd like to uh, hear asked. We all appreciate that. But um, see, this one has five votes already. This is the first one, so I'll go ahead and kick off if y'all are ready. I'm ready. Okay. <clears throat> Is it accurate to say that Advent and Christmas are just as much about Christ's second coming as his first coming, the first serving as a foreshadowing of the second? I would say yes. So uh, I would say that Advent is most definitely about both comings. Um, and Advent simply means coming um, from the Latin. And so in Advent, we read the scriptures that are prophecies from the Old Testament about Jesus' birth, but we also read prophecies from the New Testament about Jesus' return. So they, they're kind of bookended in that way of, of both comings. I would say Christmas focuses more on the original incarnation, but there's certainly the incarnation pointing toward the ultimate return of Christ and his reconciling of all things to himself and the new heaven and the new earth where you know, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more pain or suffering, but we will be rejoicing um, at the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's all sort of implicit in it as well. 
I preached a sermon on this two weeks ago, actually. Trying <laughs> to look it, look it up. But Advent, as Brian said, it is absolutely um, about both comings. And the reason is because the Old Testament prophets, they were envisioning the coming of the Lord, who is going to come and redeem his people and come and um, restore them. And what, what they couldn't really foresee, most likely, was that this coming was going to be in two successive stages. And kind of like that story you just shared, what the first coming shows us is that this great and terrible and awesome day of the, the coming of God in judgment was actually he first came to take the judgment that we owed him uh, on account of our sin. He took it upon himself. And so the coming of the Lord actually is no longer a terrible thing, but an amazing, exciting thing to think about the second coming because he's already taken the judgment upon himself. And so Christians look forward to the second coming knowing that he's going to right every wrong at the end of the at the end of the age. Yep. Great. All right. Uh, moving on. Um, let's see. How can we find patience with people in an age of Christmas being very far from what it was intended to be? Last again. How can we find patience with people in an age of Christmas being very far from what it was intended to be? I think that is a terrific question. Um, I think. There, there are several aspects of that. I think finding patience with people um, in this season can be particularly difficult. Uh, and I would say that is one of the reasons to lean hard into spiritual disciplines during this time of year. We need, a lot of times what happens when we get busy or we get off our schedule, our spiritual disciplines go out the window and we need those in order to be centered in our faith in God every day when we go out into the world. Because if you're centered in your faith in God as you go out into the world, you're much more likely to be patient. And part of our role as Christians is to, it's easy to just go out, and I find myself doing this. Um, it's really easy to go out and be frustrated with people that you feel like are keeping Christmas in the wrong way or um, have like completely the wrong attitude about it. But really, what we should be doing is we should be centered and grounded and then we should be inviting people in to come and see, rather than judging them about what they're doing, um, invite them in to what we're doing. And I think when you, when you do that and you have a, a prayerful attitude as you go into each day, it goes a long way to help with that. I think this question gets at the heart of one of the biggest objections people have about religion in general is the idea of, if you think that you have the right way, you're going to automatically think of yourself higher than everybody else. And so they automatically get really uncomfortable with the idea of, like, I have the truth, and all these other people are wrong. Well, um, the way, actually, true humility, I think, is by looking at, in many ways, the message of Christmas, the message of Christianity, is that, actually, the, the truth we profess is that every single one of us is deeply flawed, so much so that God had to come and die in our place. So, like, you have no moral high ground in Christianity. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the message of Christianity. The, the heart of the gospel is the idea that um, you're more <laughs> flawed than you ever imagined, but you're also more loved than you ever dared hope. And what that creates is a deep and radical humility, which is going to fuel a patience towards even the most hostile of people. Um, so I, I think I would, yeah, lean into the spiritual practices, lean into that message of Christianity, that like, 
You know, the truth that you believe you have is actually that you are far worse and in many ways far more like the person that you're frustrated with than you, than you may even realize in that moment. And I would say the other aspect to keep in mind is that the way that God chose to enter the world was not by having a giant spacecraft, you know, come down with, you know, the, the Jedi and all of that. Um, God came into the world as the most vulnerable human that there could be a baby. A baby is utterly dependent and utterly vulnerable. And the fact that God was willing to come in that way is an example to us about how important vulnerability is and the, the way that we can model that sort of incarnational love in our relationships with other people. Definitely. All right. Um, I've heard that Jesus wasn't actually born in December. Is that true, and why December then? That is a great question. Um, I would refer you to the recorded adult forums um, from the past two Sundays at St. Philip's where we had a brilliant lawyer who was also um, educated in theology talking about this very issue. Um, no one really knows when Jesus was born. Um, there are different ways of making predictions. Um, we do know that he was born. Um, we do know that uh, it was announced that he was going to be born uh, and that um, John the Baptist came before and all of that. There are some good reasons that the church chose December 25th. Some people will say that's only because there was a pagan festival on that day um, that the church wanted to replace. And that may have been an element of it, but there also are some other very good reasons that they chose that day. Um, the scholar that we've had at St. Philip's thinks it's probably more likely that Jesus was born in the spring, um, but we just, we don't really know. And at some level, it doesn't really matter very much. Uh, one of the things that I love in our Anglican tradition, um, that really is the tradition that goes way back to the early church, is this idea of the liturgical year. And in the liturgical year, we continually walk through all of Jesus' life, from his birth through his death and resurrection, year after year after year after year. And so where the starting point, what month that is, in some ways doesn't matter too much. That's right. What he said was it's more about the event rather than when the event happened. And what Christians have done is they've recognized that how you tell time is actually really significant into creating your own identity. And so if you think about the time markers that our culture naturally puts in place and, and what that says about what you value, that sort of thing, you know, so various holidays and that sort of thing. But um, Christians were very intentional from the get-go that they were going to film, or sorry, they were going to put their, um, how they told time around the story of Jesus and around his people. Yes. And uh, because we wanted to be formed into that story. All right, let's see. Not related to Christmas, but why do we kneel during services? Is it okay if we don't feel called to do so? Oh, I love this question. Yes, you want to hit it? Oh, I get to go. So I just if you want to inside baseball is I'm like really slow on my feet, so we always have Brian go first. <laughs> so I get a little time to think about it. But I like this question, so I'm gonna go for it. Um, yeah, I really appreciate this because I grew up in a liturgical church and kind of hated the whole like. It felt forced, and it felt, um, you know, really dry, and like the damage, uh, the potential of having it just be this really, 
rote kind of thing that was empty of, of value and meaning. That, uh, what, what changed in my own journey was recognizing that you know, what you do actually shapes what you love. You know, it, it, yeah, you, you want to express what you feel, but oftentimes what you actually do will change how you feel. And so what we do in church is we do things like sing and, and kneel. Like we, we, take, we adopt postures that we want to form our hearts. And so kneeling when we pray, obviously, is about a posture of reverence. It's wanting to uh, come into the presence of our, our king and to kneel as a posture of reverence so that our hearts would experience that kind of bowing before uh, the king of heaven and earth. And I think there, there's a great... Uh piece about this in the Screwtape Letters that C.S. Lewis wrote, and he talks about how, um, if you don't know the Screwtape Letters, it's about the devil trying to tempt the patient who's a human who's just become a Christian, so he's trying to mess him up in every way he can. And one of the things that the devil says to the tempter who's working on this patient is just convince him that it doesn't matter at all what your posture is when you pray, and then he goes off on this little discourse where he says, of course, we know that humans being animals, being having bodies, uh, and then he talks about the terrible advantage Jesus had for having had a body, um, that what you do with your body matters. And so it's not an accident that the tradition of the church is that you kneel for prayer. And what that symbolizes is that you are submitting yourself to God. And we're not used to kneeling in our culture. It's something we just don't do. Um, but I would encourage you sometime, um, I used to do an exercise when I was teaching on the um, story of the rich young ruler out of the Bible, and I'd have people role play it. And it's very different when you have that story when two people are standing up versus one of them kneeling down. It just, it changes the dynamic. And um, one of the reasons that we have had a lot of people who are so happy that we're now doing communion at the altar again, is that when you come to the altar, you kneel to receive communion. And the posture that you take is you kneel down and you bow your head and um, hold your hands up like that. Well, that is the posture of a beggar. And that's very deliberate, and, you know, is the posture of someone who is begging for bread. So these posture things matter and it certainly doesn't mean God won't hear your prayer if you don't kneel, but it's more about what it does for your heart when you yeah. do that. I will say just real quickly, adding to that, there, uh, there's a maxim that we like to use in the Anglican world is um, all can, some should, none that must. And I think this particularly because when, on, on the things that you can't really prove from the Bible, because that's our ultimate authority, that's one of the postures that we take to say there's freedom, you know. Is, is it wise? Yeah, I'd say it's probably wise to do that. Um, do you have to? Are they not gonna, is God not going to hear your prayer? Absolutely not. Um, but there is some wisdom in doing it. Um, but I wouldn't ever want to bind somebody's conscience to say that you have to do this in order to hear God's prayer. So all can, some should, none must. Well said. Well said. All right, let's see. Uh, what's your favorite Christmas practice and why is that sacred to you? Um, I'm going to have two. So uh, one of my favorite ones is uh, the old custom of the Advent wreath. Uh, I love that custom because there's so much symbolism in it. 
you know, the wreath, which is round, which symbolizes eternity, the evergreens on it, the candles that are representing not only the light of Christ, but the light of the word of God illuminating the way, um, the collects that Thomas Cranmer wrote in the 1500s that are part of our Anglican tradition for each week are just so theologically rich. And in our family, we sing a um, verse of Come That Long Expected Jesus each week. It's four stanzas. So first week, just one verse. Second week, two verses. Love that. So, And then the second practice is going to the um, Christmas Eve service at St. Philip's because uh, it is just full of beauty and wonder. The music is amazing, but when all of the lights are out and everyone is holding candles and singing Silent Night in there, if it doesn't make you get a little bit teary, then you might actually be the Grinch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty special. Um, yeah, I would have to go back to Advent practices as well. Um, you know, there are studies done that show that the most joy is had not during an event or even after remembering it, but actually anticipating it, which is why I think when Christmas comes, everybody's Christmas tree is out to the curve. Um, because the, the real joy is in the anticipation of this. Um, so the Advent wreath, and that's become true for me, like with, a, with young kids, like that's just a really fun way to, you know, they're drawn to light, and there's something about the lighting a candle that, oddly enough, draws our attention and does something to the atmosphere, and kids even and pick up on that. Um, but I would say, uh, in addition to that, you know, the idea that Christmas is a season, mm -hmm. you know, and it does kind of resist the, well, Christmas Day came, and then we're just going to chuck the tree to the curb. No, we say there's 12 days of Christmas. And so this year is going to be my first year of going to the, uh, the Twelfth Night Party that, that yeah. I think you host. So yeah. I, I may yeah. have a new uh, favorite Christmas <laughs> tradition, uh, well, celebrating I, the 12 days. And I will say, celebrating the 12 days of Christmas, I think, is a really great stake in the ground for um, making Christmas that much more special but also celebrating Epiphany. Um, Epiphany is a really important holiday in pretty much every Christian nation except in the United States and Canada and England. Um, you know, banks close, everything closes, and it's the festival of the Three Kings, and it's the festival of the manifestation of the gospel to the Gentiles, which is most all of us. And um, it is also associated with light, and so we used to have a tradition in our family that we would find every candle that we had in the house and bring them all in the dining room and close all the curtains. And then we would read scriptures about the light to the Gentiles. And each time we read it, we would light a couple of candles and eventually you've just got this that blaze. Is. And um, it, it's cool. And we that just ignore cool. that. So. That, I'm jealous. That sounds yeah. really neat and also kind of dangerous, but really cool. Uh, That's what makes it fun. Yeah, exactly. Living on the edge. All right. What cool we and dangerous. <laughs> That's what we're really about here. All right, let's see. Uh, getting into some less serious ones. Well, I don't know. This one's pretty serious. Why did Oliver Cromwell ban Christmas frowny face? <laughs> uh, that is a great question. So Oliver Cromwell uh, was... Okay, so he was a politician before he was anything else. And he, part of his support came from the Puritan wing of Christianity in England. And part of the way 
that he got support was to go kind of to an extreme on a lot of things. And one of those was to say that he thought Christmas had become an utterly secular holiday and that all of the traditions associated with it were completely secular and should be absolutely disposed of, including singing Christmas carols and all of that. And, you know, I, I think there's a little grain of truth in what he was trying to do, but he very much, in my mind, threw out the baby with the bathwater, literally, and um, cheapened the understanding of what God was doing at Christmas with the incarnation. Yeah, I, yeah. Michael, what he said. <laughs> let's see, um, let's see here. Favorite Christmas movie? There's so many that are really good. Um, so I'm probably going to have two again. Uh, I am a big fan of a sort of obscure movie that is called Joyeux Noel. Uh, that I would highly recommend. Um, there are a few parts of it that may be a little bit racy, uh, but it is a movie that is set in World War I, and in the midst of this movie, in the horror of the trench warfare of World War I, um, it's Christmas Eve, they decide there's going to be a truce, they start singing Christmas, they sing Silent Night, first the Germans sing it, Stille Nacht, and then the English answer, and they start singing, and eventually they have the courage to stand up. And this is a true story. They come out of their trenches, they talk to each other, they exchange some gifts, they play some games. There's actually a celebration of communion that happens, and then they go back to war. But it is, if it does, again, if it doesn't make you cry, um, there's something wrong with you. But it is, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, the other one that I really love is It's a Wonderful Life. Um, not all the theology of that is exactly correct, but I think its main point is very much correct. Yeah, yeah just like Ryan, probably Die Hard. No, actually, you know, the Charlie Brown stuff gets me. I love Charlie Brown Christmas music and the, the movies. All the Thanksgiving, Christmas, Charlie Brown stuff is great. All right, good deal. Um, let's see. Is Advent the timeline of Mary and Joseph traveling? Say that again. Is Advent the timeline of Mary and Joseph traveling? Is that where we get Advent from? The, the timeline? Mm -hmm. No, but that's part of it. So part of what's going on um, in, in preparing for Christmas is Mary and Joseph are traveling to Bethlehem. So there is that aspect of it, but that's, that's not really what the time period is about. But one of the things that will enrich your um, practice of Christmas is to think about that traveling, um, to think about the symmetry between that story of Mary coming on the back of a donkey to Bethlehem to give birth to Jesus, and then the symmetry at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry Jesus riding on a donkey to come in to meet his death on the cross for us. There also is a beautiful symmetry between their journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and then their journey immediately after that 
uh, to go into Egypt to hide from Herod where he's trying to kill them. If you want to do um, some great meditation, get a picture of Caravaggio's rest on the flight to Egypt and meditate on that painting. It is absolutely incredible. Yeah, I think like in the in the time leading up to Jesus' birth, obviously they were traveling, but with the season of Advent, as the church recognizes it, it's four Sundays. Yeah. First one is usually focused on like the second coming and the end of end of the age. The middle two are about John the Baptist primarily, yeah. I believe, in the Old Testament prophets. And then the last one, the Annunciation of where yeah. the angel comes to, to Mary, Mary and they announce. Yeah. So it doesn't really focus on the traveling, but there is, I mean, that would have been There's part an of element of that. Of that. Yeah. yeah. And Advent originally actually was 40 days, like Lent, um, but then it got sort of compressed over time into those four weeks before Christmas. Yeah. These are excellent questions. Let's see. What is the natural bridge for me as a Christian who celebrates the Incarnation to my friend who is a secular Jew, suspicious of everything of my faith tradition? Yeah, so um, there are lots of um, points of contact. You know, I think the first and most important thing in all of that is relationship. Um, if you are good enough friends with the person, I would really encourage trying to bring them to a Christmas service and to say right on the front end, I understand you know, this is not your faith, um, and maybe volunteer to go to a Hanukkah celebration with them just to help to learn to understand each other. Um, but I think that it is great to um, talk about that if you've, if you've seen each other's traditions. Um, another thing that can be interesting, and just depends on what the person's interest is, um, is to listen to uh, a performance of Handel's Messiah. Uh, because a lot of the text of Handel's Messiah comes from the Old Testament. Um, but the, the interesting thing for people who are secular Jews is they really are ethnically Jewish, but they don't necessarily believe or practice their faith. But to try to help them see some of the richness that there is in the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think, can be a good bridge. Yeah. I think the incarnation is the model of how we relate to folks who would maybe disagree with us. or per, I mean, Jesus came... Uh, God came um, in the flesh in Jesus Christ. Uh, as John says it, he came to his own and his own did not recognize him. And so uh, we have no fear in going to folks who maybe would disagree with us, but we come in humility. We come um, to simply be with them first and foremost. And so learning, I, I'd say, curiosity about what it is that they do believe. And as Brian said, I think oftentimes you, you just never know. Some people may sincerely uh, hold with conviction, their beliefs in Judaism on others may just feel like it's more ethnically, but everybody has beliefs about something. And so it's with genuine care and curiosity, finding out what it is that they believe and, um, and gaining the trust to be able to ask questions about it without feeling like you're attacking them. Um, and, and then exploring kind of some of those avenues. There'd be some key Old Testament texts. Isaiah 53 would be a great place to go Psalm 22. Uh, These are places where the Old Testament just naturally looks at this coming uh, of Jesus that's kind of undeniable. Good question. Great.
Let's see. Yeah, so last one. So yeah, make one. it good. Okay. Make it good. <laughs> let's see. All right, let's, let's do one more serious one, then a yeah, short rapid fire we, we can do two. Yeah, okay. that's fine. My family's Christmas usually looks like Clark Griswold's Christmas. Yeah. How do I have patience with my family? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's a great question. What, what's there to have patience with? It sounds perfect. I don't understand the <laughs> <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I think one thing in that kind of situation is to realize that you may need to have two two Christmas celebrations. You may have a, have a, have a celebration with your family where your where your entire goal is to just serve them and love them, and then to have a separate time because remember there are twelve days in Christmas. Have a separate time where you really focus on the spiritual joy of that season and on worship and all of those kinds of things. Um, I think that if, you, if you're in a Clark Griswold Christmas um, sort of stuck in there, um, to try to force that into a spiritually rich Christmas model is going to be like that old proverb about trying to make a pig sing. Um, you know, that it frustrates the pig and it's just bad for everyone. Um, so, I don't know, what would you say to that? No, that, well, I realized that you were giving a serious answer, actually, and that was very, that was very wise, what you just said. Um, I thought at first, you were like, just scrap it, just don't even do it, do another one, but, um, no, I, I think that it goes in hand with kind of what I said earlier about having patience with anybody and recognizing that Christmas is, it's a hard season. Uh, holidays can be hard getting with family. It's, awkward sometimes even with those that you really love uh, who you may be very different from and disagree with but um, yeah so having having the humility and the mind of Christ who moved towards even his enemies even those that were hard to love is is what he did um, and I think that's really wise having a, a time that you don't have to kind of be on guard maybe uh, to celebrate uh, you know, Jesus talked about his true brothers and sisters were those who did the will of God. And so yeah. um, you may gather with, with others who are like you to celebrate in a more sincere way with your guard down, perhaps. Yeah. So. All right, good deal. Um, the people are curious. Five votes. Um, <laughs> are elves the devil's minions? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. So... There, there's a strong. It's interesting in the in the realm of fairy tales and myths, elves are almost always associated with goodness. Um, in Tolkien, they are very much um, angelic. They have a lot of angelic <laughs> qualities. Um, they are very often selfless and creative. Um, so, I would say the elves are not the minions of darkness. Yeah, strong agreement to that. Actually, the elves. No, Elves make cookies and but it, toys. Yeah, and the best way to spread Christmas cheer is to sing loud for all to hear. So that's reassuring. That's you, you know, what <laughs> the elf right there. So I, I think that's just yeah, exactly it. So uh, well, guys, thank you so much for coming. We've reached time. Feel free to hang out, and thank you to Jared and all the folks at Henry's as always. Like they made this place not only beautiful, but they continue to host us. We're excited to be back in the new year. So. Grab another drink, tip well, and we're just really grateful for you being here. We look forward to next time. Yes. So thanks. All right.